Welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Thank you for joining us on the very first podcast of the 2021 Mount Carmel Family Camp and Adult Camp season. Today's episode features Fred Baltz teaching on the Exodus. He asks, who was the Pharaoh of Exodus? Can we know? Does it matter? What can we say about plagues in light of science? Where and how did Israel cross the Red Sea? Might remains of the chariot army yet be found? Appreciate the law in its proper context as a gift from God, but not as a means of salvation. Consider what hardening the heart was and still is. Hear again of the God of Israel who came down to set his people free from bondage. Come and compare the Exodus with God's New Testament act of deliverance, the cross. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Things, discover things. Uh, you're going to have those aha moments. And I want to say, please don't hesitate to ask me questions or to make comments. Just raise your hand and they'll, they'll pass that microphone to you, as you just heard, because that's the way I like to teach. I want to be responsive to the questions that come to you while I'm saying things to you. So don't hesitate. Uh, years ago, a lot of years ago, when I was in seminary, we had a visiting dignitary from church-wide offices. They didn't call it church-wide back then. But he got up in the pulpit to speak at, at the chapel. And the first thing he did was he got his watch out. And he put it up there like that. And he said, I want to tell you, all of you, I want you to do this always. When you get up to preach or teach, always visibly put your watch right there. It's not because you're ever going to look at it, but it gives the people hope. Uh, really to, to try to get through 14 chapters of Exodus and, and do it well with all of the, with, with all of the um, topics and subjects that are related to it is kind of an impossible thing to do. We're going to do the best we can. I, I think sometimes of, of, of sumo wrestlers. You know sumo wrestlers? The biggest challenge for the sumo wrestler is how to attack the problem. You know, how do you, how do you go at it? Uh, what I propose to do is, before we get to Exodus itself, we're going to do a kind of a review. For some of you, this will be a review. I mean, I know this is a kind of an LBI group, and so I think you have more of a Bible background than perhaps a lot of church groups would. But I'm not going to take anything for granted. If this is review, great. If this is something new that helps you, that's great too. I worked out a system uh, through the years. I used it in, in a way with my confirmation kids. And then I've developed a way to do this with adults. Um, if you want to do this later in more detail, you can go to YouTube. I have a little video there. It's called Coffee Cup. Bible method. And there's more of what I'm going to tell you there than I'm going to show you right now. But we would do well to review our Bible history, just the overview of where the story of God's people is going, because that will be important to us as we look at Exodus. So I've got seven events and the dates that go with them. And the idea for you is to just learn those. They're not hard. 
but learn those seven events, and those are the key events that everything else hangs on. If you remember those, you can just go through the story of God's people in the Bible. I used to have my confirmation kids do that. They could start with Abraham, and they could talk their way through. It might need a little jump start once in a while, but they could tell you the story of God's people through the Old Testament and on into the New. So, here is what we start with. We have sometimes nice groups of three names, and here's one of those, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's about 2000 BC, and that's where the story of God's people really starts. Before this in Genesis, in the first 11 chapters, you have the creation, you have uh, Noah, you have the Tower of Babel, you have stories there. They're there for a reason. Those 11 chapters are to show you that sin got into God's perfect world, and after that, things got worse and worse. For instance, you know, there are the ages that people wonder about. How, how did they live so long? Don't fail to notice that the ages get shorter as the chapters move on. That's sin getting its stranglehold on the world. Well, with chapter 12, we see God putting his plan in place that's going to involve a people. It starts with Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, and God makes a promise to them. Abram is supposed to go to the land that God will show him. God is going to give him the land. He's going to make of this people a great nation. And God will bless whoever blesses them. God will curse whoever curses them. The idea being that this nation is ideally to be a blessing to the whole world on down through time. And you know, that belongs to us because we're grafted into that people, like Paul says. We're grafted in like a wild olive shoot, even, even though I doubt that there are any Jewish people here among us today. This carries over to us. We're, we're the modern-day extension of God's original plan to be a blessing to the people of the world. So, Abraham begets Isaac. Isaac is almost sacrificed, but it doesn't happen. That's this. That's the Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. And you, you remember that. That's, um, that's stuff you learned in Sunday school. Well, the next big event is the one we're going to be talking about. But I'm not putting a year there because we're going to determine that later. The Exodus, however, is perhaps the greatest single event in the Old Testament. There are two great acts of deliverance in the Old Testament, the Exodus being one. The other is later on in the time of the kings when King Hezekiah sees the whole Assyrian army come up around Jerusalem, an army that no other king, no other nation has been able to stop. And here they are around this comparatively small city. And God says, I will defend this city. And in the morning, there's just 
quiet and silence in the camps of the Assyrians, known for their terrible cruelty, inhuman cruelty. Something has gone through the camp through the night, and there are thousands of Assyrian soldiers who are dead. That's another act of great deliverance that God has done for his people. Between those two, Exodus is certainly one of the greatest acts of deliverance when God brought Israel out of of bondage in Egypt and delivered them then from the Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. Moving up in time, this one's easy to remember because it takes you through the year 1000, 1000 BC. Another nice, neat group of three names, Saul, David, and Solomon. David, the great king, like uh, like if there was a golden age, uh, David would be the king in the golden age, and his son was Solomon. Saul went before them, but David is the father of Solomon. There's no relation between Saul and the other two. Saul fell out of favor with the Lord. But that's the beginning of of a kingdom for God's people. And if you recall, that kingdom divides into two with ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. And because of their sinning, And because they do not listen to the prophets that God sends them, the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians in 721 B.C., and they never come back. No one would have expected them to. In 986, it happens to Judah. They didn't listen to Jeremiah and and the others. And so that great temple that Solomon had built is destroyed, and the leading citizens that are still left, some of them have already been taken away, but this is the time of of the exile, when these people talk about a trail of tears like we have in our nation's history. These people are taken from their homes and they're forcibly relocated hundreds, hundreds of miles away in a different part of the world in Babylonia. And There's no reason for them to think that they will ever have their nation back again, that they will ever come home again, that there will ever be a temple again. Somebody might be saying that, a prophet here and there, but it sure doesn't look that way. However, they return in 538. Cyrus the Great comes to the throne and And this remarkable man changes many things about the world that he finds himself in. And he sends the Jews, they're they're properly called Jews now, the people from Judah. He sends the people from Judah back and even helps them rebuild their temple and their city. After that, we come to the New Testament and really the the pivotal, the the central events of the New Testament are all gathered together there in one year. The crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, and just a few months later, Pentecost and the birth of the church, that can all be set in 33. So if you kind of have that all in mind now, uh, let's take out our 
Bibles. And we're going to do some reading in the text. We, we just won't be able to read through all of it. But let's begin with chapter 1, verse 1. And because of what we've just looked at with, with the uh, first card, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, here we are. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Joseph is already in Egypt. Remember why? He's God's point man. This is that blessing working itself out. Uh, he even kind of says so. Uh, Joseph says this at the end of the book of Genesis. He says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That I would be here to, to feed to feed all these people through the ideas that God has given me and the abilities that God has given me. So God's blessing was working itself out through Joseph already. And you know how it ends in the, there in, the, in Genesis that they've all come down to sojourn, not to live permanently in Egypt, but to sojourn there and wait out this famine, live in a great place, until God has different plans in the future. Because recall, God has promised them in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that they will have their own land to live in. For now, they're in Egypt. <clears throat> Anybody know what the Hebrew name is for the book of Genesis? It's Bereshith, means in the beginning. What would you guess the name would be for the book of Exodus? Shemot, names. These are the names. When I hear that, that suggests to me that these are real people being talked about. It's not some fable, some tale. There are people who are called minimalists today. And they want to say that there's virtually no history here. These are the names. These are the names. Now, um, as I said before, I think we've got a pretty Bible-believing crowd here. But let me ask you, um, how many of you had an opportunity somewhere along the line, to take an Old Testament college course. All right. Now, for how many of you was that a positive experience? All right, maybe not everybody. You need to know, if you don't know this already, that there is a wide spectrum of views out in the academic world about how we should come to the scriptures and teach them. 
there was a person who died just within the last year or two. He still has a web presence. It's called Debunking Christianity. This man went to Harvard University. He was formerly a Christian, at least that's what he said. He was a children's pastor, but he, he became an outright atheist, and his purpose as a professor teaching young people was to take the faith out of them that they came to school with. Not all that far from home, that was a professor of religion at Iowa State University. Our son took courses from him. His goal, his intention was to to remove faith, keep anybody from believing this book. How does somebody like that get to be a professor, a tenured professor at a university? Now, if someone had come and and said, I am a Bible-believing person with a PhD from Harvard University, I'd like to teach here. That person would have less chance of being employed there, called there. I am absolutely sure of that. Another case, go to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. In their religion faculty, I think the chair of their religion faculty is now a person who was an evangelical Christian but has become an atheist. He calls himself the happy atheist, and he teaches teaches for the Great Courses series as well. His name is Bart Ehrman. Maybe you've heard that name. Uh, there was a movie made, a film made, called God is Not Dead. And that takes up this subject of what's happening in classrooms. There's a rundown, as I recall, at the end of the film of court cases that were fought, of situations here and there. Many, many of them where in academia... There are people in teaching roles who are making it very difficult for believing students in those classrooms to speak up for their faith or even come away still holding that faith. You need, uh, we all need to be aware of that. Let's just say it was a music department. Let's say that I'm a professor in a music department. Do you suppose they would keep me on if I said, you know, I love music, but I can't stand the piano. Nobody should ever play the piano. Anybody who's here to learn piano, get out. We're going to teach you something better. I wouldn't be able to keep a job in the music department if I had that attitude toward my subject matter. But if my subject matter is a negative view toward Scripture and its truth and its historicity, then I'm avant-garde. And I'm, I'm someone on that faculty that gets the notice of people. That's, um, that's where we are. Well, of course, we have people who are debating that viewpoint, taking it on, locking horns with it. And in this uh, debate, this is what I've noticed, this is what I believe, <clears throat> Christians have said, we can't really prove, for instance, that the exodus took place. We can't really prove it. There's a lot of evidence in favor of it when you look at the evidence correctly, but we really can't prove it. 
One of those discoveries that I talked to you about last night, we're going to discover that, yes, we can prove it, and we're going to come to that. Uh, we, don't want to, we don't want to um, surrender to the minimalists, the, the, the ones who would deny our faith. We don't want to surrender to them any point if we don't have to. So, we have on our side people such as, well, we have people in academia. We have a lot of them. But we also have a man named Tim Mahoney, and he's down here in, in uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul. And he has developed something called Patterns of Evidence. It's documentary films. It's also a website, and the website is continually updated with new material. And uh, so some years ago, uh, I knew that there was one of these films coming out. And I could never find where it was going to be shown. A friend of mine called and he said, you know, the film's going to be in Dubuque. Let's go see it together. I was meant to see this film. I was meant to see this film. Because the film, done by Tim, it's about Moses and about whether Moses would have been able to use language, written language, the way the Bible claims. At the end of the film, there's a panel discussion within the film, and someone said, Tim, what's your next subject? What's the next movie going to be about? He said, it's going to be about the Exodus and where they crossed the Red Sea. I had just been teaching this to our brown bag Bible study group, faithful group of wonderful people from our church and other churches. And when I teach the Bible, I really try to be thorough and look into what is happening in academia and bring that to everybody in positive and helpful ways. So not long before that, I had read this book by Sir Colin Humphreys, The Miracles of Exodus. And... Uh, I also was interested in this book, The Lost Sea of Exodus. This, this man has done a wonderful, wonderful job of putting this book together with marvelous uh, maps. He's a geographer himself. He's wrong, but he's, he's a geographer. He, beautiful book. This is all in my mind. This is all in my mind. I am looking at old maps 100, 200, 300-year-old maps. And I discovered something on one of those maps that wasn't on any other map. We're going to come to that. But anyway, this is, this is all in my thinking. My thinking is developing. So I got a hold of Tim Mahoney. I sent him an email, and I said, please talk to me when you make your next movie because I have something I know nobody else has put out there. Time went by, time went by. I thought, it's in the circular file. And then there was a message at the church. I hadn't even given him the church number. He lost what I sent him, but he wanted to get a hold of me anyway. He remembered me, and he figured out how to get a hold of me. And that's how I found my way into the part one and part two of the Red Sea miracle. Uh, that's, this is all to say that this subject matter has been on my mind for a while. And I have been comparing my thoughts with the thoughts of others as to when the exodus happened, where things took place, how they took place. And that's what we're going to be uh, sharing here. So 
Our question we're going to begin with, we're going to try to use the, the words that the journalists use, you know, who, what, when, where, why, how. And I'm going to add another one, whether. Because in view of all that I've said, we've got some people, remember, we've got some people who are saying this never happened at all. This nation of Israel, centuries later, decided they wanted to have a past. So they invented a past. And that's where the Exodus came from. That's where David, with all of his glory and grandeur, came from. It's all invented. It's not true, they say. Okay? So let's talk about weather. Let's talk about weather. Um, to do that, let's jump ahead. If, why don't you put your finger in Exodus 1? Let's do it this way. Let's go to the book of Joshua. And let's find the 10th chapter. Again, in view of our little review that we did at the outset, well, you'll remember that with the Exodus, Israel came out of Egypt. But then, because they were filled with doubt and they were disobedient, they didn't get to go back and take their promised land right away. They had to do what we parents call timeout. <laughs> they had a 40-year timeout. And they were wandering. It doesn't mean that they were lost, but it means that they didn't have permission to go into their promised land yet. And it was exactly 40 years. After the 40 years, in the spring, they crossed the river, the Jordan River, into the promised land. They kept the Passover there in their own land for the first time. And now the conquest under Joshua begins. Is this, uh, is this ringing a bell? I hope it is. The conquest begins. The very first place they come up against is the formidable, fearsome city of Jericho. And the walls fall down. And the archaeology of that is being debated now, but there's a lot of archaeological evidence in favor of that story having happened just the way the book of Joshua says. Then they went on to another city called Ai. Used to be thought by people like our son's professor, his atheist professor, that they've done the archaeology at the site called Ai, and they found that there's nothing there that matches the biblical story. There's no burn layer. There's, it's just, that's just a fable in the book of Joshua. Now, they have done archaeological work at another place called Kirbet al makadr And if you read the story of what happened at Ai, there's geography involved. There's, um, there's a place for, for, for Joshua's army to hide. That is all missing at the place that they first thought was Ai. But this new site, al makadr 
That has it all just the way it is described in the Bible. And sure enough, there's the burn layer from just the right level down. These kinds of things are happening more all the time. And the minimalist stock is going down and going down. But in our story now of Joshua, we have these first two things. We have Jericho, then we have I, and the next thing that happens is, is in our chapter 10. So very little time has gone by in the conquest. That's, that's one of the points I want to make. In chapter 10, uh, Joshua is in kind of a jam. He has made an alliance with some people who turn out to be from the city of Gibeon. They've lied to him. They've said they're from a far-off place, and they show up in rags, and they say, we're poor. Would you please make a covenant with us that you'll help protect us and we'll be good to you? And they didn't inquire of the Lord. They just went ahead and did it. They're not supposed to be making alliances with any of the people in Canaan. They were deceived, but they, they gave their word. They gave the Lord's word. So, here's the city of Gibeon, and all the other kings realize that these people have made peace with the invader Joshua and the Israelites. They decide to make war on Gibeon and exterminate that city. Gibeonites send for help. They send a messenger to Joshua. He's at Gilgal. He comes with his army through the night, and they get there, and the battle begins. The battle starts, and it's going Joshua's way. Israel is victorious. It's one nation with the Gibeonites against five kings, and they're driving them, driving them down the valley. And then Joshua says, Sun, stand still, or, or stop. Let me put it that way. Sun, stop over Ayalon and the moon over the valley of Selah. That's a story, of course, that gets laughed at a lot by the, by the skeptics and the unbelievers. But in 2017, three professors from Ben-Gurion University, which is kind of a, it's, they're somewhere in between the minimalists and the maximalists, these three guys that wrote this paper. Uh, they thought, you know, that story could be true, and maybe we've found the event that explains the story. They found this. And I have recreated this, uh, there's a wonderful program that's available to any of you free of charge. It's called Stellarium. So you can carry around with you in your laptop the whole sky for all of history as seen from any place in the world. Comes in handy, believe me, if you're a Bible student. Well, in October, on the 30th, in minus 1206, when you see the minus sign, that's not the same as B.C. Uh, it, it, this would be um, 1205 B.C. because one way of counting has the minus sign and, and, and it has a year zero. The other one doesn't have a year zero. It, it, that's kind of, that's insignificant, but sometimes you'll hear me uh, pointing to a year and the number you see on the screen will be one digit off. I'm not making a mistake. That's just because we've got two different systems we're working with. There's an annular eclipse over Israel. 
And that's what it looked like. There it is, recreated. An annular eclipse means that the moon's far enough away that there's still sun shining around it. That's not all that big a deal as far as this is concerned, but they're going to point out it's an annular eclipse. And they said, these three uh, authors named Yitzhak, Weishtaub, and Avner, that this may be the event that, that is referred to in the book of Joshua when the sun stopped, because the word dome can mean stop shining and not necessarily stop moving. And so that would then mean that maybe an exodus happened within the century before that. And they were looking at Ramses II as the pharaoh of the exodus, which many people believe was the pharaoh of the exodus, if they believe there was an exodus. One of the people who believed that, of course, was Cecil B. DeMille. So let it be written. So let it be done. He had a researcher named Nordlinger. Back in the 1950s, everybody thought Ramses II would be the pharaoh of the exodus and that the exodus, if it happened, for those who believed it happened, probably happened in the middle of the 13th century B.C. Now we have in 1 Kings, now if you if you look at 1 Kings, and go to, I've got 2 Kings, I want 1 Kings. Go to chapter uh, 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. Again, we're remembering now where Solomon and David belong in our timeline, it says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The great temple of the Lord was begun in the fourth year of King Solomon. Now, the Bible scholars have done the math. If this was the 480th year after the Exodus, that puts the Exodus in 1446 B.C. Right? 1446 B.C. is what this seems to be telling us. Now, folks like Sir Colin Humphreys and others... They say, well, the 480 years, that's an approximation. That's a symbolic number. I mean, that's a multiple of 12, and there are 12, 12 uh, tribes and maybe 40 years per generation. If you look at the, at the list of the high priests, it kind of seems like that would take you back to the, to the time of Ramses, but not clear back to 1446. Still, that's what the Bible says. Now I want to show you what Yitzhak, Weishtaub, and Avner would have found if they had kept looking. I found this years ago in front of my old iMac with a disk of star stuff. 
Nobody's looking for things like this because they've already given up. They've already thought this can't be real, this can't be happening. Here is another eclipse. This eclipse happened over Israel. But you remember that first one? It looked like the sun was going down. It was. It happened at the end of the day. The sun was still eclipsed when it was setting. That can't fit the Joshua story of an ongoing battle after the stopping of the sun. It says in in chapter 10 that Joshua and his army kept on going and that that, that the the sun uh, was there and did not set for almost a whole day. It doesn't work if it's set when it was stopped from shining. But this one is midday. It also happened in May, which fits our chronology. Remember, you had Jericho and Ai and then the Battle of Gibeon starting from the spring. This is about the right time of year. The right, and it happened in uh, okay, four, minus 1405 or 1406 B.C. That's exactly 40 years after our Exodus year as it's given in 1 Kings chapter 6. So we can triangulate, you see. We've got two separate ways of counting history. One back through the kings of Israel and Judah that on the basis of the first king's passage takes us to 1446 B.C. as the year of the Exodus. Now we have an event in the sky that just sounds a lot like Joshua's experience of the stopping sun, and it happens exactly 40 years after 1446, 40 years for the wilderness wandering. We count back that 40 years, we're at 1446. We've got two independent streams of thought, two independent streams of evidence, let me say. This cannot be simply a coincidence. This is beyond all reasonable doubt, verification that an exodus took place in 1446 B.C., And so for the people that want to say there's no proof, you just heard it. You just heard it. There is evidence that cannot be overturned that this event we're talking about is real. Now, let me stop there. That's a lot of stuff. Uh, Are there any questions or any comments that you want to make before we go further? Yeah, there's a book by Thomas Cahill, uh, uh, who is a Roman Catholic, uh, that uh, is called The Gift of the Jews. And uh, uh, it accounts uh, for uh, uh, the uh, uh, Abraham, uh, it, it, it really begins with the Abraham uh, story. Uh, has anyone else read the book? Uh, it, uh, it's very well written, uh, uh, and uh, I even have my, my copy of it along, uh, <laughs> in case somebody would like to take and see it. It's, uh, it discusses uh, how the, uh, uh, Abraham uh, was able to uh, leave uh, the Assyrian nation uh, uh, which at a time when uh, the idea of writing 
curse began. Uh, writing, uh, writing began in uh, Assyria, so there, and so uh, that's that's why all of the writing that occurs uh, uh, before uh, the Abraham story uh, in the Bible was just uh, oral recollections uh, that were put down, uh, obviously with the help uh, of the Holy Spirit, but. Uh, uh, I, I recommend uh, the, this uh, uh, book as uh, uh, how uh, it, you know it goes uh, through the story of uh, David and Saul and David and, and and on all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, so, I, I, what's the I, name again of the book? Uh, the gift of the Jews. The gift of the Jews. Thank you, Thomas Cahill. Anybody else with a question or a comment? This is just a quick one, but did I write this down, the date, right? The fall of, the, of Judah? 986? 586? Okay. Five, okay. 586. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to come back to the when, but... Uh, now let's go to Exodus again and let's just do some, some more reading. We know we're back in the 15th century BC, not the 13th. And we'll say more about the personalities that we encounter back then. But for now, let's, let's begin with verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pythom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Just uh, pause there for a minute. Remember the promise to Abraham. Whoever... Blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. By doing this, the Egyptians are bringing upon themselves a new enemy who is God. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. 
and became mid and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I mean, this is terrible. This is truly terrible. Did you notice the names of the store cities that the Israelites were forced to build? Python and Ramses. Now, this is another of the reasons why a lot of scholars have thought this story belongs in the time of Ramses II in the 13th century, like in the movie The Ten Commandments. Because the archaeology at the city of Ramses shows that it was built by that same king. He built on something earlier, established first by his father Seti I. But it was Ramses who caused this great store city to come about in the middle of the 13th century, like 1250 in there. In the Nile, uh, as it empties there in the delta into the ocean, there, there was a place where there was an island in the Nile, and within the island there was a lake. That's the site where the archaeologists have been uh, doing the work on Ramsey. I've got a picture of Manfred Bietak there. He's the main archaeologist. He's been working there basically his whole working life from uh, the University of Austria. And so how could it be that 1446 is really the year of the Exodus, but Ramses and Python were built 200 years later, according to the archaeological evidence. That's a conundrum. And that's been an argument against the date we have said the Exodus happened. But there's an explanation for that. And the explanation is that sometimes in this part of the Bible, newer names, newer place names are used for older places. In Genesis, when Joseph is bringing his family down to settle, it says they were given the best land. They settled in the land of Ramses. It says that in the Genesis text. Ramses, there was no land of Ramses yet. Ramses wouldn't be born for a long time. But it was known later when this Bible was put together as the land of Ramses. So there was some editing that went on, and sometimes later names were given for earlier places. Python, we don't know where that was, but let's, let's uh, think of some more about Ramses now. And Betak went down further. Beneath Ramses was an older city, Avaris. Uh, Betak though he is not a maximalist by any means, has recently said that he's now found a reference to a place called Geshem, which is Goshen, the land of Goshen, where they, where they lived, where they stayed. And beneath Ramses is a whole different kind of, of, of picture. Uh, it's a place of the dwelling of many Semites, and at this time, there was something called the Hyksos uh, occupation that was going on. There were foreigners that came into Egypt. 
and they were, after about a century, they were driven out. But there were lots of foreigners in the land. And what you see there in Avaris, beneath Ramses, comports exactly with our story in the Bible. So the place Avaris is called by its later name Ramses, but in 1446, it fits exactly our biblical picture. Thank you for joining us today on the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. We hope that Fred's teachings have been a blessing to you. Come back for the next five episodes of Fred's teaching and for the rest of the family and adult camp teachers from 2021.